So last week we uh, read about the parable of the growing seed from Mark chapter 4. And we, we learned how God says, go find a field, scatter the gospel seed, go take a nap because you're not responsible for growing it, and see where it grows. And then where it grows, go back there and teach, baptize, help, help people know and train them uh, to become farmers as well. It's a fairly simple strategy. About 25 of us yesterday spent the day uh, at a discipleship training workshop, which was fantastic. And we learned uh, why we have an obligation to share the gospel. We learned how to simply share the gospel in, in a brief amount of time in a biblical, simple way. We learned how to pray for people. We learned how to lead a simple Bible study. We learned where to go find people. We learned how to pray. It was all really awesome And uh, from 9 to 3 yesterday. And by the time we were done, we actually had people who made some phone calls to friends to set up a time to meet with them so that they could share the gospel with them or talk to them. And we had people who uh, are going to be intentional about finding some friends who God has put in their lives who don't know the Lord. We even had a group of people who walked around our neighborhood, this neighborhood, yesterday. We, we knocked collectively, two by two, on 40 doors. 12 people said, nah, we're not interested. <clears throat> 21 people said, yeah, I really would appreciate if you'd pray for me. Pray for 21 people yesterday just by knocking on the door. Half of them said, yeah, we would, we would like prayer. And, some, of course, some people weren't there. Uh, weren't home, uh, 20 people said, yeah, I would like to, to see what it means to follow Jesus. You can share the gospel with me. So we shared the gospel with 20 people yesterday in this neighborhood. 11 of them said, I would like to hear more. I, I, I would love you to come back and share more. 11 people. I mean, that's amazing. And, and we walked, it was just right over here. We knocked on one door and uh, my wife was with me and said, how are you doing? He said, man, I'm, I'm doing great. And we said, well, why are you doing so great? And he said, because I, I just got a job, and I've been needing the job for a long time. And my wife said, oh, I remember you. Some high school students were with me, and we prayed for you about getting a job last year and when high school students had been walking around the neighborhood. And he said, yeah, I remember when you guys came and prayed for me. Thank you. We knocked on another door, and... Met a family um, that did not speak English, and I did my best, which was not very good. And basically, all I could say was, um, no hablo español, mi español es muy mal, lo siento, lo siento, lo siento, mi amiga. And, hey, then I'm looking for somebody who speaks Spanish. And we found, we have several Spanish-speaking people here, and went back there. Her family just moved here from Cuba. I imagine they have a few stories. And there's brokenness and there's feeling alone and afraid and hurt. And they said, please come in and ask that we come in and just sit down and visit. And we were able to share the gospel with them and to pray with them. And there's going to be some follow-up work even today. Somebody's going to stop by and just check on them. And it's amazing when we begin to look around how many needs are out there? How many people just need a friend? They need somebody to care for them, somebody to love them, and somebody to even say, to answer that million-dollar question, how can I be saved? I know that I'm broken, so how can I be saved? And Last week, if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go back 
Um, sometimes I would say you can let, just listen to the sermon. It might be helpful to actually watch this one. But we went through just a, a really easy way to share the faith in which you draw a circle here and say God made this perfect design for us, this perfect world for us. But we left this perfect design and went over here to, because we sinned, to this brokenness, and we all feel this brokenness, and we try to escape the brokenness, sometimes with um, alcohol and things like that that lead to addiction, but it's like a bungee cord. It always, we feel like we're getting away from brokenness, but it just yanks us back into the middle of brokenness. Sometimes we try to get away from brokenness by good moral living, but that snaps us back. That doesn't heal our brokenness. Sometimes we try to get away by success or by chasing money. And it always brings us back to this brokenness. And God did not want us to stay brokenness. So he made a way and we drew a circle over here or drew a line over here to this third circle to Jesus Christ who heals us of our brokenness and takes us back to the way that God designed for our lives to be. And then God sends us right back to the broken to help them know how they can move away from brokenness into following Jesus. Matt Crosser this last week had the opportunity to diagram that little thing on the back hood of a car that he had helped push. And it was misty, and he was able to draw that little diagram on the hood of a car and talk to somebody about the gospel. How awesome is that? And so it's one thing to be saved, and it's a whole other thing to be able to take that salvation to other people. And I hope that while we're talking today about some theological issues of how can I be saved, what does baptism have to do with all of this, and all these kind of questions, I hope that we'll, we'll remind ourselves that it's not just about winning an argument at all. It's about helping people know the Lord, okay? And I, I want you to, to keep this metaphor in your mind. Uh, a guy named Scott McKnight wrote a book called The Blue Parakeet, and I'll just summarize it for you in this way. Parakeets can fly, and they can do loop-de-loops and circles and all these things, but if you put them in a cage, can they do those things? No. And a lot of us treat the Bible that way. We, we try to take this incredible, amazing book that God, God's Word given to us, and we try to shove it into our little cage. And we say, God, this, this is how I want the Bible to read so that it fits my opinion, or my tradition, or what I was taught, or what's easy for me. And we try to keep cramming it in there, and we find texts that don't really work for us. So we jam them in, and we keep trying to close the door. But the Bible is way too big for that, and God is too big for us to jam it into a cage. Instead, we want to let this text win over our lives, and we submit to God's word and say, God... If what you are saying is different than what I used to think, okay, I submit to you. I'm not going to try to cram you into this cage. So as we move forward this morning, I just want you to keep that in mind. If, if the Bible says something that makes you uncomfortable because it's not what you used to think or not what somebody else had told you or what's easy for you, just when that feeling comes of, like, I just need to cram that into my little theological cage, don't, don't do that. Just let the Bible win. And so today, to talk about these questions of salvation and, and baptism and how all of these things work, I just want to tell two Bible stories that I think will answer a lot of questions for us. And the first is found in Mark chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. We'll be in Mark chapter 10 and Acts chapter 16 today. In Mark chapter 10, I'm just going to be reading in verse, uh, begin in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, 
A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? There's that million-dollar question. How can I be saved? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared. All these I have kept since I was a boy. So the, so the man comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus said, well, you can't really do all these things. You know, what are the, the commandments? And, you know, do all of these things. And the guy said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been looking at the Ten Commandments. I've been following all of those things. I have not murdered anybody today. I, I'm good. And Jesus, right here from the beginning, is saying, eh, you may think you're good. But your goodness can't save you. We'll finish this story in a little bit. But let me illustrate that. Uh, about a year and a half ago, we were able to visit our good uh, missionary friends. And we stopped through Dubai, uh, which is this kind of incredible city. It's kind of what happens when a whole bunch of people strike so much oil that they have so much money they don't know what to do with it. <laughs> That's kind of what Dubai could have looked like to me. I mean, these... Huge, huge, big buildings. The, the Burj Khalifa is 2,700 feet tall, the world's tallest building. So if you go look at the BOK Tower downtown Tulsa, that's 700 feet. So the Burj is another 2,000 feet taller than that, all right? So kind of figure that out. The, the BOK would be one of those really small buildings kind of next to it, <laughs> uh, right there. Uh, so it's 11 degrees cooler on the top floor than the bottom floor. That's how tall it is. It, it was $1.5 billion. It's 211 stories, 300 hotel rooms, 900 apartments, 24,000 windows, and 57 elevators. All in that, that little building right there that kind of sticks up out of the middle of the desert. Imagine if you were told that your job was to keep the Burj Khalifa clean and you are a one-man cleaning crew. And and there's more to it than that. You're not just keeping it dusted, but it's still in use. The the apartments and hotel, everything, plus you're responsible for the 24,000 windows inside and out. It's all up to you while it's still in use. You would walk in there that first day with your cleaning rag and your little cart, and you would start cleaning, and it would not be very long before you'd just quit, wouldn't you? You just couldn't do it. And I want you to think about that emotion that you'd feel like, ah, I can't, I can't clean. I, I barely got one floor done, and I didn't even get that done. And now it's already dirty again. How in the world am I supposed to? You could work night and day, and you could never keep it all clean. And you can work your whole life trying to do all of the good things you want to do, and you can never earn salvation. You just can't do it. You can chase it, you can chase it, you can chase it, and you can't earn salvation because one sin separated you from God. And you think, well, it was just one. But if God is perfect, one sin is enough. It separates you from him and his perfect design. And it leads us to this life of brokenness. And let's face it, all of us are guilty of more than one sin, aren't we? Let's not start counting them out loud. But we are. We have sinned, and and our lives have been broken, and we've paid the price for that. So we are sinners, not saved by our good works. That's like trying to clean the burge. 
We are saved by grace through faith. Paul and his companions were going from town to town. And they were sharing the gospel. They were doing what Mark 4 says. They were scattering seed. And one time they came to Macedonia. And if you want to turn over to Acts chapter 16, I want to read a second story for us. And we'll be back in Mark 10 in a little bit. Acts chapter 16, verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come, stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So Lydia did not save herself. The Lord, it says, opened up her heart. And she was immediately baptized. I think when we talk about salvation, it's good to look at the norms of Scripture. There are always some stories where, you know, Jesus is, is on the cross and the, the sinner next to him. That's not a normal situation. But it does show you God's grace can be instantaneous. And, and he can forgive the most vile of people who have lived rotten lives their entire lives. But if they have a genuine conversion of God, I want to follow you. God has the authority to forgive them right there. But that's not the normal situation in Scripture. I think it's healthy to look at the normal situations in Scriptures. And what we see is five things over and over and over and over connected to salvation. And I put a diagram in your sermon page, if that's helpful. We also have it up here on the screen, if we'll pull it up there. Just when somebody um, is convicted of, yes, I want to follow Jesus, what we see is starting at the top left, they have faith. That's John 3.16, believe and you will be saved. And then kind of moving down the left, they confess. We see that throughout Scripture, that they're willing to say, God, I need you in my life, I, I believe that you are the Lord in Christ. And they repent. That word is used throughout Scripture to indicate this turning around. I'm not going to be my own boss anymore. Now, God, you are my king. They do those three things. That's an act that they do. But then two things are done to them immediately. They are baptized. It's always in the passive tense. They don't go baptize somebody else. They might do that later. But they are baptized. That means it's done to them. They say, I would like to be baptized, Paul. Or, hey, Apollos, I would like to be baptized. Hey, Peter, I would like to be baptized. And they are baptized. It's something done to them. It's this beautifully symbolic act of dying to self and coming up out of the water a new life. And this last thing that is done to them, you could, you could put a, def, a bunch of different words here. I just put the word regeneration. But... You could put rebirth, renewal, forgiveness of sins, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what Acts 2.38 says. That if you repent and are baptized, you will, your sins will be forgiven and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's this new life in you. God does this work. So it's you who believe. You have faith. You confess. You repent. The church baptizes you. And it could be anybody here at Highland Park. We don't have any big rules about that. That's why we've seen teenagers baptize teenagers. We've seen teenagers baptize their parents. We've seen parents baptize their kids. We've seen friends baptize friends. Uh, I've been able to baptize people, and, but it's baptizing someone, and so the person responding has that baptism. 
done to them. And then God does the real work. He's the one who does the real moving here because he forgives sins and he gives the gift of the Holy Spirit and he does this new work, this new thing in our lives to change us. And we see those five things again and again in Scripture. This, uh, this uh, last week, I was asked to be interviewed on this theology podcast and it was kind of a, a nerve-wracking thing because I don't want to mess up too bad. And... Um, I gave this example, and I messed up in it. Um, but we were talking about baptism. And to be honest with you, our view of baptism is a little bit different than the mainstream view in America. It just is. And the mainstream view in America is baptism is lowered in its significance. I think that's probably a fair way to put that. And so we were talking, and I gave this example um, these, these, this podcast comes out of Chicago, and so I wanted a Chicago example. And I said, okay, what year did Michael Jordan come to the Bulls? And they immediately knew. 1984. Okay. So if uh, three, four, five different reporters came to Michael Jordan, and they said, what happened in 1984? He might say, well, I, I signed with the Sh- Chicago Bulls. Another reporter might ask him, say, what happened in 1984? I started wearing the red and black. Another person, what happened in 1984? I became a member of the NBA. Okay, another person might say, what happened in 1984? Well, I started playing for Coach Doug Collins. At that point, I did not say Doug Collins. I messed up and said Phil Collins, lead singer for Genesis, <laughs> saying, then the Tarzan soundtrack is going through my head the rest of the time. It was terrible. And so I had to correct the Phil Collins, Doug Collins mistake. Um, but if the reporters got together later and they said, well, Jordan was lying because he told you this and he told you this and he told you this and those are all different things. No, no, he wasn't lying. He was telling you five different things, four or five different things that happened in 1984 that all revolved around the exact same thing. And if you remove any of those things, then he's not actually a member of the Bulls. And I think when it comes to salvation, sometimes we pick and choose. We kind of cram the Bible into this cage, and we say belief and confession are the only thing that matters. Because John 3.16, it says, if you believe. Does that mean that when Jesus spoke that in John 3.16, he was discounting baptism? Of course it doesn't. Any fair reading of Scripture would say, well, of course it doesn't. And if you look throughout Scripture, there's other examples. In Acts 2, it's repent and be baptized. Does that mean when Peter said that, and by the way, 3,000 people responded right then, does it mean that he was saying confession isn't important? Of course it doesn't. It was obvious that that was part of it. In Colossians 2, talks about um, being baptized and uh, raised in faith, this new work that God doesn't. Does that mean that repentance isn't part of it? No, of course it doesn't. In Galatians 3, we see faith and this regeneration, this work that God does in us. Later, we see faith and baptism together. In Titus 3, we say, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 10, we see confession. So we see these five things all throughout, and the fair reading of the New Testament says, well, yeah, all five of them. We don't minimize one of them because, because the New Testament authors did not include all five every time. But for a New Testament Christian, if you were to say, how am I saved? They would have said, well, these things. There, there's not any argument about that. It's pretty clear in Scripture. 
And there would not have been, well, you just get to pick and choose, or there would have been, well, this one doesn't matter because it's not included here. And I just want to ask you to be cautious when you hear somebody say one of these things without any of the other, or when you say, how are we saved? And they've been giving this really good Bible study, and then they get down to how are we saved, and they don't include any text with the answer on that one. That makes me really nervous. Because there's plenty of text when it comes to salvation. Uh, Dave and Roseanne are on vacation up in the Northeast uh, this week. And one thing that Dave, I think he heard from uh, his friend Alan, one of the things that he said a lot that I've just picked up on is uh, when he's asked, you know, well, do I, do I have to be baptized to be saved? And Dave said, listen, if God, if God can't save someone, because they had a different view of baptism than you do. If, if you're saying that he can't save them, then your God might be too small. But if you think that baptism isn't connected to salvation, after reading the Bible, your Bible might be too small. And as a Christian, I don't want to be dogmatic and hit people over the head, but I want to teach the truth every time. And I want you to teach the truth every time. And, and we can be gracious and loving. And so the guys on the podcast, they try to kind of nail me down with this question. And the guys were awesome. They were great and friendly. But they said, so what do you think? Do we, do we have to be baptized to be saved? I said, well, that's, that's, a, that's one question I'm not really comfortable answering. I can tell you in the first century, you did. Here's why. In the first century, there was no argument about it. There was no confusion about the word. There was no confusion about what it meant. There, there was no infant baptism happening there. There was no sprinkling happening there. There was no uh, sinner's prayer. I, I did the sinner's prayer thing at whatever camp when I was in seventh grade because that was never taught because it wasn't in the New Testament. It wasn't a New Testament example, so it was pretty clear back then. How God you know, works through that today, I believe God more than anything else, wants your heart. He really wants your heart. And then he's a good and gracious and loving and fair and just judge, and I'm glad I don't have his job. But in the meantime, what do we do? We are honest with Scripture, and we let it win, and we're gracious with our hearts, and we're loving to other people, and we care about other people. Okay, so let's go and see the end of the story in Mark chapter 10. Um, so we had the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, and he says, hey, I've done all of these good things. And we get to verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. I hope when you look at people, you love them, even if they're a mess, even if they're broken, even if they disagree with you. Just love them. That's what Jesus did. One thing you lack, Jesus said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Mm. I hate that story. Such a depressing story. And Jesus isn't saying you're saved by giving away your wealth. He's not saying that's how you're saved. But what is Jesus after? He's after your heart. And for this man, he knew that wealth had gotten in the way of his heart. And he knew that if you can't choose me above your wealth, you can't follow me. I actually think it would be pretty healthy for Jesus to get that specific with us today. And I actually kind of think he does through the Holy Spirit. That when the Holy Spirit whispers, you have too much of this. You're, You're chasing this too much. I want you to chase me instead. 
me over those things. We need to listen to that. So there's an idea uh, in kind of debates about, uh, it comes out of Calvinism, of irresistible grace. That, that when God chooses somebody, they can't say no. And God looks around and he elects whom he elects and he adopts whom he adopts and he chooses and he chooses. And none of us can really know how. And when he really chooses somebody, they just follow him. And I just think the story of Mark 10 blows that whole theory to smithereens. <laughs> because Jesus chose this guy. And he said, come, follow me. And what did the guy do? He walked away. It means that Jesus is not actually irresistible. Could God make it that way? Sure. But God is such a gentleman, and he loves people, and he wants our hearts, that he doesn't want to force you to follow him. He, he wants to plead with you to follow him. But he allows you to choose. Will I follow you or not? The idea of this irresistible grace leaves a huge problem. It means that God is saying, like, you, not you, you, not you, you, not you, you, not you. And I don't see that in the character of God when I read the Bible. Now, I don't want to put God in a cage, but I just don't see that. I actually see where the Bible is preached, everyone who hears it gets to respond. When, when we send Bibles places, Everyone who reads it has the opportunity to respond. When you go and you share with your neighbor or your friend or you knock on a door, that person has the opportunity to respond. And God is saying, I choose you, I want you, but if you say no, I'll let you walk away. I won't demand that you come because I want your heart. I don't want this to be a forced relationship. How do you feel about the destiny of the two? We've got Lydia and we've got the rich young ruler. I mean, we don't want to really play judge, but we just kind of see one person chose to follow Jesus and one person chose to not follow Jesus. Could Lydia have walked away from Jesus later? Now we get into this little theory called once saved, always saved. And I'm not going to fight with you about it, but it seems pretty clear to me in the New Testament that sometimes people say yes to Jesus for a while. And then they choose to walk away. Is God strong enough to hang on to you? Sure. Is he loving enough to let go? Yeah. And all throughout the scripture in the New Testament, we see, hang in there, persevere, don't give up, uh, keep meeting together, keep praying, keep studying, keep growing. Why? Because God doesn't want you to fall away from him. He wants you to keep chasing him. It doesn't mean that you need to live in fear. I don't think you need to walk each day in fear thinking, man, God might drop me at any moment. I sinned yesterday, and I, it might be too late for me. God doesn't want you to live that way, but he wants you to live in this awe and fear of him in a healthy way of, God, I respect you, and I revere you, and you are my king, and I don't want to take advantage of that. I also think it means that we need to pay attention to our daily lives, to the spiritual disciplines, to reading and to prayer and to meeting together. That's why Paul says, don't give up the habit of meeting together. Why? Because you are capable of falling away. You are capable of dropping everything about Jesus and walking away. And it probably won't happen in one moment. I mean, it could. But it probably will happen little bit by little bit. Slow fade away from the Lord. And so that's why every day matters. 
that we pay attention to our spiritual lives every day. And it's why church matters. It's why uh, having people close to you matters, who help you grow in the Lord. Jesus tells us, stay on the vine. Hang on. Don't let go. In 1 Corinthians 3, we read this verse last week, and I want to read it again because it's so helpful. Paul writes, I planted the seed, gospel, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose. You don't get credit for being the one who creates new life, but you get to participate in the process. And it's a beautiful thing. My friend Lance and his wife Tara uh, are doing great church work up in New York City. And he sent a note the other day to talk about how Tara's uh, boss had come to know the Lord. I just wanted to, to read to you what happened uh, and how she came to know the Lord. So here's the steps. Number one, this is uh, Tara's boss. She was raised Jewish and therefore had a knowledge of one God instilled in her by her parents and synagogue and growing up. Okay. Step two, she got married and her husband became convicted to start following after God. Step three, her husband began attending a local church. Step four, Tara talked to her boss and her boss said she had started attending church following her husband's lead. Step five, uh, Tara and I, so this is Lance talking, Tara and I went on a five-week support raising trip. That included that Tara had to ask off work for five weeks. And when she told her boss about it, her boss said, well, well what do you do? What, tell me more about this. And when she began to share with her boss about their work, her boss became emotional and said, you've got to do this. You've got to keep telling people because I'm interested in this Jesus too. And so you should keep telling people. Go, take your five weeks, we'll cover you. Step six. Her boss asked uh, soon after Tara returned if she knew of any good, diverse churches in Harlem. Step seven. Tara said, yeah, Renaissance Church in Harlem. Step eight. Our good brother Jordan Rice preached, and Tara heard the gospel again and again and again. Step nine. She and her whole family were baptized last Sunday, hopefully for the future um, and for, for her parents and families. Their lives have been changed forever. So when you say, how was Tara's boss baptized? You couldn't answer very simply, could you? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. All of these things were happening. People were planting seeds. People were watering, and they saw this new life begin to grow, and then God did this great Work And it's a beautiful thing that God wants to do. When we think about salvation, we have to think about the people who don't have it yet. Sounds like Acts 16, doesn't it? I, I sent a text to my friend Lance. I said, hey, your wife's story reminds me of Acts 16. I've just been reading about Lydia. You have this really savvy businesswoman, and she hears the gospel, and she responds along with her whole household. How great is that? It's incredible. The word baptism itself, I, I don't know how to say it other than it's unfortunate that it got translated like it did. There, there's a few different stories about it, and I don't really even care about how it all, exactly all happened. But what I know is this. 
the word baptismo in the original language, so when Jesus said it, when Peter said it, when Paul said it, when they said baptismo, what people heard was immersed or dunked or dipped, but like into water and out. And that's why all of the early church practiced baptism that way, because it was just really obvious. There was nothing nuanced about it. But as the centuries rolled on, uh, some in the church in England began to sprinkle infants. And so in the translation process of the Bible, they got to this problem. What do we do? Because if we translate it immersed, it might make us look bad. I don't know if that's exactly, I don't know all the motives or whatever. All I know is if the word would have been translated correctly, immersed, in my opinion, we wouldn't have all this confusion. But they did what's called transliteration. So we take the Greek word and we just make an English word out of it. So baptismo becomes baptized, and then you can define it however you want to. I just think that's unfortunate. I wish it would have just been translated immersed, and we would have no confusion about it. But we do. We have lots of confusion about it, and rarely does a month go by when somebody doesn't say, you know, I I had this experience when I was a kid. Do you think it counts? I'm not stepping into that one with a yes or no. God is judge. However, I feel like that's an unfortunate spot for anyone to be in. And the Bible doesn't say you need to keep being rebaptized every time you sin. Otherwise, we just all wear our swimsuits here every week, right? <laughs> that's true. The Bible idea is to be baptized one time. But with this confusion that we have, what I share with people is that in the New Testament, baptism was a decision for somebody to personally make themselves. Nobody else could make that decision for them, not their parents, not their brother, not their sister, not the preacher, nobody. It was their decision. And can God still work around all of that? God can do what he wants to do. But if we want to follow the New Testament model, and I think if you're bothered by that, my words are, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you that you need to make this baptism thing your decision, then you need to not ignore the Holy Spirit's prodding in your life. And, and again, I don't want to be dogmatic and mean, and I don't want to tell you, hey, what happened when you were six years old doesn't count, but I want you to listen to the Holy Spirit. I want you to read the Scripture. I want you to see what is God talking to you about. And uh, one of the things that we love to do as elders and leaders and others here at the church, we love to just sit down with people and just talk about what's your story. And let's just open up Scripture and let's just see what do you think God would have you do. And uh, if any of you, even this morning, would, as you've been listening, thinking, man, maybe I've kind of crammed this whole salvation thing into my cage. <laughs> and maybe I just need to let it out and let God do what he wants to do. I would encourage you to do that for two reasons. Number one, to have the freedom that Jesus wants to work in you and to not have this weight on your shoulders and, uh, and to just fully know that you have obeyed God in every way. And number two, I think it matters to your testimony so that when you talk to a friend that you can just say, you're interested in knowing about salvation? Absolutely, let me tell you. And you don't have to do this weird skirting around the thing of, here's what the Bible says, but kind of here's what I did. It just makes it uncomfortable and awkward. And I think both reasons are enough for you to really think about that. And 
For anybody who's never been baptized before, uh, the Bible shows us that you don't have to wait for like years of studying, that there's instant response. If you need some more time to think about it, that's okay, and we would love to study with you and talk to you. And even this morning, though, if somebody is ready to be baptized, we would love to baptize you this morning, later later today. We'd also love to meet with you later. So on your communication card, if you would like to meet with somebody and talk about salvation, just mark that down, and we'll be glad to have lunch with you or uh, meet you up here and talk about that this week. Um, If you would, would you just be standing, and uh, I'm going to ask a few of our leaders just to be up here at the front and be ready to talk to anybody who would like to even come down during this next song and maybe just say, hey, I'm ready, or I want to learn more, and we would be glad to do that. I'm just so thankful that our God loves us enough to give us a way to be saved. I mean, don't ever belittle that. The God of the universe wants to save you. Let's pray. God, thank you that you care about us so much. And I pray that we don't get stuck in any of too much of the academic talk uh, other than what is healthy and helpful, that we don't do this to win an argument. We do this because we love you and we care about people. And we talk about this because you care so much and we want to share the truth with others so that you can set them free. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.